0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal Global Summetry, which can be found at the Global Summetry Project uh, website. It is my real pleasure today to bring back into the virtual studio Nick uh, Bisley to talk about Australia's response to COVID-19. This is episode 23 of the NOW series, Uh, And it's a great pleasure to have Nick with us to examine Australia's response uh, to the COVID-19 crisis. As many of you will already know, uh, Australia has been relatively successful in flattening uh, the infection of COVID-19. And we wanted to explore with Nick the efforts that Governments have taken on Australia to do this, and also to contrast it and try to understand why Australia's response to the bushfires earlier in the summer in Australia uh, were seen to be unsuccessful. Nick is currently the head of, of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia and he's a professor of international relations. He has written uh, widely uh, in the field. So let's introduce uh, Nick once again and uh, look forward to an intense interview on Australia's response to COVID-19. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome back into the virtual studio my good friend Nick Bisley from australia and la trobe uh university so how are you nick i'm well how are you doing good good very good this is not going to be a big surprise to you in this first question but it, it's fairly evident we have a rather dramatic uh, global event the covid 19 pandemic um i mean, looking at it kind of broadly from the global order kinds of pr- uh perspective uh, do you think that, uh, you know, kind of the leading states and the significant international organizations, obviously the WHO, but others as well? Because, you know, you, we've seen the involvement uh, of the WTO to some degree, but certainly the IMF, the World Bank. Uh, have all these uh, states and, and countries and institutions kind of stepped up uh, to meet this unprecedented crisis from your perspective?
1: Look, I, I think it's um, pretty clear that the, the virus has exposed sort of fractures and dysfunction both within governments and in um, the sort of institutions of, of international order or global mm-hmm. governance, whatever you call it. Um, and it's been striking uh, just how quickly it has shown um, a lot of the very severe weaknesses of institutions, particularly at the international level, that rely on Kind of collaborative goodwill, mm-hmm. uh, and, and at a, a, a time of very acute crisis, um, that cooperative goodwill seemed to evaporate pretty quickly, um, <laughs> and and you saw states retreat very swiftly um, to prioritising their, their their domestic affairs, mm-hmm. um, and I think also you know you, you saw um, you know things that you and I and others have been talking about for years which is you know the the basic structure of a lot of these institutions their mandates mm-hmm. are a bit out of date and don't quite reflect the reality of either where power is or what the sort of core demands or stresses are on on societies and you saw that sort of play itself out so you saw um in a whole range of institutions excellent press releases mm-hmm. <laughs> but very little you know the G20 um APEC Uh, ASEAN, uh, a lot of them produced fine, you know, fine press releases and with good statements of common cause and common intent and very little substantive action. So
0: So, that makes sense from what you're suggesting. And certainly just pointing at the G20. Of course, everybody noted the, you know, to do whatever it takes. And we all looked around to see whether the G20 leaders had done anything and it was pretty hard to... It was pretty hard to discover that and and there's an interesting report by the way uh, in the south china morning post that occurred uh, at the end of last week which suggested that a second meeting actually had been was being organized for a you know, a g20 leaders meeting and apparently um, it was called off and it was called off because the China, the Xi Jinping and his officials and uh, Donald Trump and his officials in the United States were, you know, kind of going at it with respect to the WHO. And as a result, they just called off the meeting. I don't know. We didn't see that report uh, from elsewhere. But does it surprise you, uh, particularly on the China U.S. front?
1: No, it doesn't surprise at all. It gels with some chatter that I've heard both in social media and just around the traps that um, the level of uh, mutual antagonism between the US and China over mm-hmm. the virus in particular, but but more generally is stymieing, um, is, is having a really deleterious effect on what you would otherwise expect to be an, a, a moment which would bring states to their senses in terms of kind of geopolitical competition and saying we've got a, a common human crisis here mm-hmm. uh we should bring our efforts to bear and cooperate and deal with these because it's, we're talking about human lives and and all of the things you know and all of the social um, dimensions that go with that and not the abstract question of balance of power and things like that and yet the opposite has happened, you know, that, that this has become um, a toxic, a pretty toxic political football. And, you know, you've heard reports of things like um, various intergovernmental meetings where the Americans have said, you know, we we want a signing statement that says the Wuhan virus and everyone else said, you know, we don't need to politicise it in this way. Um, and then they said, well, we're not going to have an agreement unless you all do. So these things fall apart. So it's it's a common. I think, you know, you've got a combination of... Mm-hmm. You know, long-term problems and, and fractures and challenges. Uh, and then uh, at the moment, it's compounded by the fact that you've got, I think, pretty poor leadership across the across the board, but particularly in the, the two biggies, you know, the, the two countries who could really pull people along, mm-hmm. in Be- Beijing for the sort of non-democratic emerging economies um, and the US for the Western allies and the sort of developed economies and the like. If those two could collaborate and bring people together, then you could imagine a much more cooperative environment and positive things coming from that. But when you've got leadership that is so bent, and, and it's both sides, you know, I'm not saying this is all America's fault, it's both sides, mm-hmm. where you've got leadership that is intent on um, politicising this, and often for, for pretty crude domestic affairs, I mean, I was really struck by how the politicisation of the virus um, by the, by both Beijing and, and uh, the US mm-hmm. is being done for, for largely domestic purposes. You know, mm-hmm. Trump has clearly decided this is going to be a central plank of his re-election campaign, mm-hmm. and for Xi Jinping, it's all about you know selling a message of um, tough, strong China that has seen off the, um, the the killer virus and knows how to do it, and is now being having having its its credibility questioned by a horrible America that's out to get it and it's just it's just really depressing to be perfectly blunt that <laughs> in a time like this when we really need leadership and we really need at the global level um, a collaborative mindset we've got this uh,
0: that's fair I mean you did you know the Wuhan virus statement of course uh, that emerged out of the g7 and that was the for mm. that was the forum uh, yeah that was the foreign minister's uh, uh, meeting which at the end of the day. Um, as a result of the insistence of, uh, uh Secretary of State Pompeo um there was no statement uh, because he insisted but you know what's what's interesting maybe it needs a little reflection is you know we've seen the insistence of the united states in a number of uh, cases um in the, in the recent past very recent past most particularly around statements related either to uh well the, let's take the positive side in the sense that the united states resisted very strongly at the g20 level which, of course, does include Australia, um, the inclusion or the the statements about the Paris Peace Agreement. And at the end of the day, um, uh, and I think this was uh, Buenos Aires, actually, um, the French President Macron uh, basically said, look, I I won't sign this uh, statement. Uh, unless it includes, uh, you know, the support for the Paris Agreement, notwithstanding the American position. So we have seen where you know, kind of the collective effort on the part of some of the states, and I'm thinking particularly the G20 level, because Australia is a part of this, uh, where, the, you know, they've pushed forward even where it's split uh, the, uh, the, the group. And so it's a isn't it a little surprising then that we haven't seen uh, a more concerted effort, if not with the United States and China but with others
1: yeah I think that, the, that it, it is a little surprising and, and again probably slightly depressing that what we've seen has been a retreat to this a retreat to sort of behind the wall, so to speak mm-hmm. um, countries and and that may be just a resourcing issue you know that that uh I mean, most countries' borders are closed uh, physically. You know, certainly in Australia, um, we're in a situation that I could not have imagined in January, where uh, essentially no one can come into the country and the government has basically said, do not go abroad, um, and has declared the rest of the world as a um, effectively a war zone. It's <laughs> kind of got these categories, thou shalt not go, and, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get it. So the, the entire world, from an Australian point of view, is a DFAT level four, which is you know, ordinarily that's like Kabul in a war war zone uh, during wartime. Um, really? So you know, we we are in a situation where literally the borders are the walls are up, and I think that's an apt kind of metaphor for how a lot of countries are thinking about this, which is mm-hmm. we have got a crisis that's that's a physical crisis. It's a it's this virus. We have to stop it coming in. We have to stop it spreading. Um, and I think that's played out in a lot of the ways in which they're approaching it, uh, which is to not be especially collaborative at the at the intergovernmental level. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's probably you probably have to balance that a little bit with kind of what you might describe as kind of uh, grassroots or, or operational cooperation, where you, you're seeing yeah. remarkable level of collaboration in the scientific community with yes. sharing of research and vaccine collaboration. You know, a remarkable level going on at that. At the what you would call the microbial level, you know, literally it's the scientists around the world working together. But what you haven't seen um, has has been has been government saying, okay, we've got a global problem. We need some global, ch- if not literally pan global, but we need an intergovernmental kind of approach to, to buttress or reinforce what we're doing domestically. That just hasn't occurred, and I think it, it's probably for a range of different reasons, partly to do with, as we said before, those institutional creeks, partly to do with resources, but I think partly to do with an instinct, which is this is, we're fighting this on the home front. I think really that there is a mindset that this is something that's very, very local, and indeed, you know, in Australia we look at um, the the virus and it is really it, it's state by state you know the, what what is happening in in Western Australia is really different from what's happening in, in Victoria which is really different from what's happening in Brisbane mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but I think yeah. all of that all of that has sort of produced a, an environment in which what you would have thought instinctively would be uh, a, a situation that's very conducive to intergovernmental cooperation and sort of, of multilateralism mm-hmm. and yet it hasn't. Where I th- where I think that stuff will probably come back into play much more uh, and be much more effective, um, both both be more visible, um, more operational and more effective is in the post crisis.
0: Is the um, opening up? Recovery. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, it, and and I think to to go back to the G twenty also, it, it's probably yeah. a little unfair to, to to heap too much scorn on the G twenty because it's really. I mean, it's, it's at its heart what it, what it does best and where it works most effectively uh, goes back to its origins as, a, as an institution around finance. That's um, true. And around, yeah, and around you know communication, coordination, and finance between finance ministries. And I think again, I this is anticipating things, but I think when we when we get out the other side of this and we're staring down the barrel of a you know, globally catastrophic uh, economic circumstances the G20 forum will will probably come back into its own in Mm -hmm. in that environment.
0: Well, you know, that is interesting. I've talked to some of our other colleagues, uh, whether in uh, Brazil or in in terms of talking about the UK and so forth. And, you know, there is a sense that um, the contrast is with the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. That was, it was obviously, global financial concerns uh and striking uh, nationally but you know global uh the finance ministers and central bankers who've been meeting for years right could could kind of they could gather together and could move forward on trying to deal uh with the global financial crisis clearly here um in this uh crisis uh you know we've we've never had a really strong framework on as is apparent on, on, on global health. And global health ministers and or the policy making process hasn't really been, uh, a part of, uh, G20. So at one level, it, I suppose it isn't all that surprising that, you know, the kind of immediate reaction that we got to do something wasn't there. And as you, as you point out, it's clearly, uh, a, a, a national, a, a national response initially. You just close everything down where it, won't be a national response it seems to me and we just mentioned it is in opening up because you know then it becomes travels uh, traveling and all the kinds of things that are a part of the the broader uh system uh global system uh that have for purposes of several months not been there
1: yeah no, I, th- I think that's right what's also going to be really interesting to watch in that context is the tension between those who will push, and this is in many countries, not just um, the, the ones that are most high profile, but those will take the opportunity of this moment to say, we need more national self-sufficiency across mm-hmm. the board. Mm-hmm. We need whether med tech or whether it's just um, basic supply chains, um, food supply, all those sorts of things, uh, energy supply to say, okay, we've got to do less globalisation and more self-sufficiency. And those who say, you know, down that path lies very slow growth and all of the inefficiencies and all of the problems. And mm-hmm. what will be kind of really fascinating to watch out is how that plays out in forums like uh, like G20 and, mm-hmm. and WTO and where you've got a, a sort of underlying institutional kind of setting which is pro-globalisation, pro-integration, pro let market forces determine how supply chains and things like that function Mm -hmm. and a a movement that's been around movement's probably to say it's too organized it sounds a bit more organized than it is but certainly a sentiment out there that's been around for a little while to say actually maybe globalization isn't such a good thing it's it produces too many vulnerabilities and, and whether you're a a mercantilist and a Trump Trumpy who wants, you know, jobs to come back from China, right. or whether you're just, or you're just a security minded person who says, you know, if you're in the defense ministry and you sit there and go, if, and certainly from the Australian point of view, the classic one they always point to is we, we have no national fuel supply. We import virtually all of our, uh, our energy, our, our petroleum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have about a 20 day supply so that if there was for whatever reason, a cutoff of supply, we basically, within two or three weeks we'd have no um, gasoline uh, or diesel or anything along those lines. So that, I think, the, those tensions will be really interesting to see how those play out and, and who's able to capitalise on um, the, the political moment of the post-crisis because the, 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 what, what my sense, I think, is that whilst the mercantilists or the economic nationalists will have some wind in their sails, mm-hmm. the des- uh, the desire to get back moving quickly and to get back to how things were to some degree, economically speaking, uh, before the crisis, will probably give the the old way of doing things, that's to say kind of restarting old production chains, restarting mm-hmm. uh, economic integration. I think that's probably likely to win the day, but, but we don't know. And, and how that tussle is played out in those forums is going to be really, really crucial to determine uh, how the global economy emerges out of all this?
0: Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, and I guess the question is, uh, just to finish up on, uh, on Australia at the international level, has has the Australian federal government, you know, approached others, uh, other institutions in the Asia Pacific, or other relationships, be it Australia in in. China or Australia, well, New Zealand. I take it there's been a rather close coordination uh, in terms of of uh, trying to deal with the crisis. Am I am I correct on that? It, look, the the, the um, uh, this
1: I think Australia is probably typical in that we have not been especially international in our response to to the initial crisis. It was once once the sort of decision was taken mm-hmm. um, that the barriers would go up. People, you know, travel would stop. All, all foreigners weren't allowed in, um, except basically diplos. Uh, and we wanted to get Australians home. I think all the intergovernmental effort was basically coordinating that. Like, mm-hmm. how do We will help you get your citizens home if you can help us get our citizens home. Um, New Zealand's probably been a slight exception, but not a huge exception. And that's really only happened fairly recently as, you know, we're recording this in, in the first week of May. Um, Australia has to this point done a, you know, the, the curve has been very severely flattened. The, mm-hmm. Our levels of infection are very, very, very low. Mm-hmm. New Zealand, I think, is, has had several days of zero new infections. Um, so we're, we're beginning to talk with New Zealand now about how we can work together to at least get some trade and movement of people going. Um, new Zealand is a you know, tourism dependent economy. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not tourism dependent in the sense that it's not that bigger slice of our GDP compared to New Zealand. But we both, we're both both economies that that need people to move around. Um, so that's that's begun to happen. But I think um, it's been what cooperation there has been has been very much at the information sharing about how you deal with the mm-hmm. very specific element of getting ventilators and doing all that sort of stuff. So it, it really, I think Australia's been a real exception to the broader trend of um a fairly depressing it's every state for themselves
0: hmm. so so let's look uh, more directly at, at the response in australia and uh uh you know from what i know and obviously you can fill in uh, the detail that australia's been relatively successful at at uh, beating back uh the pandemic in, uh, throughout the country
1: yeah no it's it's really been um Remarkable when you look at what has happened globally uh, and you, you've seen how, you know, Australia is a very globalised society. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a very mobile population. We are economically dependent on the outside world in many respects. Um, and yet, uh, as I said before, we're at that we're, we're really at that point where we're talking about opening up and we're beginning to think about kids going back to schools and universities beginning to think about how we um, bring students back on on campus and things like that yeah
0: how'd you do it how did australia (laughs) respond so uh, directly to you know the the pandemic
1: i think there's a couple of things i think we we i mean we were very fortunate in that we're an end of the line country for from a travel point of view so we're not a throughput country so people don't come and move on i see Uh, and i think physical distance helped. so i mean the coronavirus came from abroad. Interestingly, the, the government keeps very clear uh, statistics on the, and they publish them every day about the numbers of cases and where they've come from. So they're doing a lot of contact tracing and that sort of thing. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
1: The, yeah, it's all come from abroad. And interestingly, the vast, vast majority of cases that have come into the country came from the United States and from <laughs> Europe, really not from China.
0: No. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, partly
1: we. We shut China off very early on, so we—I um, think the first week of February—the uh, the, the shutters came down on China. But um, what what came into the country and which caused um, relative what what is ultimately proven to be relatively low levels of community transmission um, was principally out of um, Italy and out of the United States, and they're two places where we have a lot of travel mm-hmm. um, from uh, due to business links, community links, and things like that. Um, but I think. The, the the Australian response um, was also. I mean, the, what was really interesting was to watch um, the federal dimension at play because the federal government, which is led by Prime Minister Scott Morrison, it's a um, conservative government, um, sort of centrist conservative. They're not they're not out of the you know, the, the, the crazy right, um, but but fairly you know conventional um, small C conservatives.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they were pretty hesitant to shut things down. They were. Quick to shut down travel from China, they were interestingly hesitant to <clears throat> shut down travel from Italy and Korea, yeah. um, and very reluctant to shut travel from the United States. Huh. Uh, but once it became clear that in in early March that. The virus had gotten loose in Australia, and that it wasn't just um, people from the, the from the communist lands that were bringing it here. Uh, what we saw was the two the two biggest states, so Victoria and New South Wales, got out in front of um, the state government and said, so the federal government and said, we are we're basically doing what um, what's been recommended, which is we're essentially locking down the populations, we're imposing all of these restrictions, and there was this three or four day period where, I remember on the Friday, the state government here in Victoria um, issued these, was a, no, it, was a, it was a Saturday morning, that's right, they had a press conference and they said, you know, on Monday um, we will basically be closing the state for everything but essential businesses um, and we'll tell you on Monday morning what that means. And so there was a weekend of, kind of mass, not freak out, but a, <laughs> a, a kind of panic buying and, and all sorts of things in, in particular what happened was um, panic buying of booze because yeah what, what they hadn't clarified so they, they, they had said very clearly that you know, we're going to stop the central businesses so you can go to the supermarket and you can um, go to the chemist and you'll be you know that'll be okay uh, and and they but they didn't say anything about booze and of course in australia the there's a distinction between supermarkets don't sell booze. Um, you have to go to a bottle shop and it's not as restricted as in Canada or uh, other countries, but there's a clear distinction. So supermarket, no booze. If you want a bottle of wine or some beer, you've got to go to a bottle shop. Um, and, and so on, on that Sunday afternoon, apparently the bottle shops were absolutely crazy. And <laughs> reading reports about, um, you know, these bottle shop owners saying, I've never seen business like this in my 30 year career, these kind of things. So, um, but that was out in front of the federal government. Um, but when Victoria, because Victoria and New South Wales both both moved in lockstep and essentially took the, the same steps, the federal government had very little option but to follow along. And so, what that meant was um, a national lockdown. Um, again, it was interesting the balance they struck. I, I think they got to we'll wait and see when it's all done and dusted, but I think the Australian. Yeah position was a pretty good balance to strike so we didn't have as severe a lockdown as in new zealand or in italy or in um, spain Spain, yeah Uh, Mm -hmm. so you you know so there was some uncertainty in the first week or two about what could remain open and what couldn't what was essential what wasn't Um, but within about a week or two it worked out you know cafes and restaurants pubs clubs they all had to close but Cafes and restaurants could do takeaway. Mm-hmm. There was very clear rules about uh, social distancing in shops. So if you were a, a, um, a fruit and vegetable shop, they said, you know, you, it's square metres, you can have this many people inside, this many square metres. Mm-hmm. And so very quickly, shops all went, okay, so you now had to queue up to go into your fruit and veg shop. But you could go by fruit and veg, you can go to mm-hmm. – and, and all sorts of shops, I mean, basically everyone was allowed to keep, op- keep open if they wanted to. And a lot of shops just said, People aren't coming out and, and have um, put a pause and we've had pretty serious economic consequences, but there's been just enough economic movement that and people have been able to sort of live a normal-ish life. I mean, it's not normal in any abstract sense, but, you know, you can go out and exercise. You can you know, do – okay, the kids are home from school, homeschooling, so if you hear them in the background, that's, <laughs> that's why. Um, but, yeah, we – take the dog for a walk in the morning, in the afternoon, and you can go for a run or a jog or a bike ride or whatever you want to do. Um, There's plenty of, you know, you can get food and and crucially, you can get your booze. Um, And so overall we've had the the social distancing has worked. Um, There's been very strict rules. The police have enforced a lot of things very Mm -hmm. early on, very high publicity um, enforcement of these sort of rules. Uh, And ultimately I think we we acted relatively quickly um, and, The amount of uh, the number of people who come into the country with it was um, pretty limited, and then as things built up up, in the grand scheme of things, and then as things went on, they introduced you know quarantine, you know formal quarantine, because initially they said okay, if you came in from abroad during this period, you have to self isolate at home, Uh, and lots of people were not doing what they ought to do, and so they just introduced a rule that said okay, if you come into the country, you will be stuck in a hotel. Mm -hmm. We will put you in. You, we will not be allowed out of that hotel room for two two weeks, so you, it's a really effective quarantine. So, um, so those things, relatively swift movement, relatively small numbers of, of infections coming in, and a relatively um, effective isolation of it, has meant that we're now in a position where, um, you know, it it, it we're, we're, we are fingers crossed um, through the worst of it, and you know, there's interesting stories that you read about uh, hospitals that were preparing for the worst. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a really quite, quite interesting article I read in the local paper from a, an ER doctor saying we're preparing for the worst and we kept waiting for it and the tsunami never came. Um, there are, At the moment, there are um, active cases across the country, I think, at 39. There are seven people in ICU, no one in ventilators. You know, it's just staggering so, uh, um, how, uh, how effective it's been.
0: Well uh, and just to uh, the final point did, did and and maybe identifying who might be even more appropriate um was there a lot of testing that was then implemented uh, and tracing is that how the Australian government uh kind of went about uh dealing with the fact that there was community spread and more and maybe more importantly where was the instruction coming from was it coming from the federal government, or was it coming from the big states like New South Wales and <laughs> and, and and Victoria? So probably the most interesting um, from
1: a from a you, know, you and I, are political scientists from, yep. from our corner of the world, the thing that was most interesting was very quickly after that little stoush early on between New South Wales, Victoria, and the federal government, they established a national cabinet, uh-huh. um, and this, was, this and this was slightly just unusual in the sense of having all of the state premiers um, plus the, um, uh, prime minister, I think deputy prime minister and the chief medical officer. So that, co- that was a kind of central coordinating body. And they've been meeting twice, three, four times a week, depending on what, what's going on and what phase, um, things were, were at, mm-hmm. um, that had coordinating things. So I think that, that was really important at ensuring, you know, a national approach to contact tracing, to levels of testing, to data sharing, all that sort of thing. Um, Particularly when, in effect, what you've got is not one national um, problem, but a series of geographically discrete pandemics, if you like, or
0: uh, right. epidemics. Sure,
1: because it's uh, such it's, a big and country. it's similar in Canada, where you've got yep. you know, you've got big uh, urban concentrations and then very little between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in Australia, it's been almost almost entirely a a big city problem. Very there's very little of of coronavirus in. Um, regional and rural australia Hmm. Uh, the second thing i think is federalism has meant that um, and in some respects we've got like canada a good number of you know we haven't got 50 federal state governments we've got six Um, they're very well resourced uh, and health is is as much a state responsibility as a federal one so uh, at each state level you had a very significant amount of resources put into contact tracing, they were doing it very early on we had, um, at my university we had a, a student actually in my faculty uh, who tested positive so we actually saw it kind of up close how it worked and they were rem- remarkable, s- remarkably systematic and thorough um, the level of detail they went into, mm-hmm. they, the amount of information we got up to a point, although they, they wouldn't tell us the student's name so we had to kind of back engineer who the student was which <laughs> really, um But there was, you know, you you saw, I think, in a really, really positive way how well-resourced public health uh, uh, bureaucracies can can um, keep a lid on these things. And I think, and the other thing is testing. You know, Australia has done a lot of testing Mm -hmm. per capita. Probably, I mean, Iceland's out the front, as I understand it. But we're at kind of south, not quite South Korean levels of testing, but not far from it. So in Victoria. Um, we're coming to the end of a two-week blitz where they they're aiming to test over 100,000 people in two weeks. Which, um, if 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 they pull it off, um, you know, will be probably it'll basically get a very good sense as to this the scale of of um, what if any community transmission there is. So, and I think the um, the other thing striking about the current. Uh, crisis is the contrast with the bushfires I yeah mean,
0: no, I, mean, that, I was going to ask you about that because I mean I mean suddenly federalism seemed to work the right way. What happened with federalism uh, you know in in the previous crisis, which was the bushfires yeah,
1: I mean, a couple of things there I mean one is they learned the lesson right so so Scott okay. Morrison I think okay. was barely embarrassed and, and knew that, and I think he'd underestimated the scale of but underestimated the need for coordinate a national response both both practically and and um, from a leadership sort of symbolism point of view so i think that 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 helped um that they'd learned that lesson um secondly is the nature of the crisis is different you know this is one this is a medical um you know it's a viral challenge in which uh state capacity can really make a difference i think when you've got a bushfire um it's it, there's only so much states can do you know there's a physical physical limits to what you can do to fight these things off there's more you know from a state capacity intervention point of view there's more you can do before and there's lots you can do after but during the crisis it's difficult whereas here what we've got is a crisis that says okay if you if you change the rules lock people in their homes, Enforce those rules, share information, do you know, pull the levers of, of the public health bureaucracy, and mm-hmm. um, you can make a real difference. So I think that that goes some of the way to to, to explaining it. Um, but the but but yeah, I think that had you know it would have been really interesting had bushfires not happened um, mm-hmm. because Scott Morrison is is not sp- especially politically astute. I think if he hadn't done it, I think he would have badly underestimated. I mean, this is total speculation, but my sure. hunch is the 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 complacency that led to the poor handling of the bushfires would have been still there, mm-hmm. um, lead up to this, to, to, this crisis. But, but equally as, as in the bushfires, um, the state governments, I think were, did a good job relatively speaking then, and they're doing a good job now. And it's, um, a, a bit like in the U S where the state governors are coming out of this with oh, plenty of political capital. Mm-hmm. The two mm-hmm. state premiers of New South Wales and Victoria are coming out of it with their, credentials very very firmly uh, it, 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 um, reinforced. So, um, But, yeah, we're, the, the, the challenge for us, though, is it's um, it's autumn. So we're going in autumn, going into winter.
0: Right, um, right.
1: So far, we don't know what that might mean. Um, conventional wisdom seems to say that for these kinds of viruses, it could get worse before it gets better. From a just climate point of view, um, up in the Northern Hemisphere, you're going into spring and summer, and that, again, the conventional wisdom says – Thinks that that will be beneficial. So we're kind of peak because peak normal flu season here is in August, um, and hmm. we've all been running. We've all been running around getting our seasonal flu shots. I'm not, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I, I got it the first opportunity. <laughs> um, so
0: uh,
1: well, you know, it, it's one of those things where we feel like there's we're getting out of this to some degree, but there's equally a sense that there's, there's, there there could be um, a second shoe to fall on this one.
0: Well, you may then. Prove to be, Australia may prove to be the canary in the coal mine, uh, yeah. you know, in the sense I know there's been a lot of debate around whether or not the virus can kind of follows the traditional pattern, gets worse during winter season and gets uh, less uh, uh, difficult uh, or the spread seems to narrow during the summer. But we're, we're going to see. I I do want to thank you, Nick, for such an interesting insight into uh how Australia has been dealing uh, with uh, COVID-19, the pandemic. It's it's really a pleasure to uh, have you uh, join us on this particular subject.
1: Oh, pleasure, Alan. I, I hope the next time we chat, it'll be something slightly more um, slightly <laughs> upbeat. <impressive.
0: laughs> You've been listening to the Global Cemetery Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, And the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.